Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. So welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola, helping you take control of your health. And we are in for a real treat today. Uh, I've had this interview with Jay Feldman scheduled for the past month, and I've been so looking forward to it. I'm going to tell you why. um, But to, to understand why, I think I've got to give you a little backstory. Now, you know, I've recently embraced Ray Pete's work this year, earlier this year, which is a big challenge for me because... Um, I, I'd known of Ray Pete's work for well over three decades and completely dismissed it largely because of confirmational bias, because I thought I knew better. And I thought his ideas were wacky and crazy. And he was a biologist, didn't know what he was talking about. So I dismissed him and not until literally late last year or shortly before he passed, uh, did I finally understand it, largely because he was one of the earliest pioneers and helping to educate the public about the dangers of linoleic acid. And there's no doubt in my mind that's probably the single biggest threat to humanity's health is linoleic acid. So they said, if he was right about that, it's certainly worth exploring these other things. So I want to let you know right off the bat that many of you, I I read the comments, and many of you are concerned about this approach of the shift from my low-carb recommendations to a high-carb. And, and it's understandable, and you probably likely have some confirmational bias. So hopefully it won't take you 30 years to overcome my confirmational bias that it took me. But, you know, I've interviewed Georgie Dinkoff in the past, and I love George. I love him to death. He's so smart. His mind is literally a supercomputer. There's very few minds I know that work like his. And I'm particularly thrilled with that because I love molecular biology, and I want to understand the science be- of recommending something. So, so I've been engaging with him, but Georgie's not a clinician. That's not his forte. Uh, he's a self-taught and I think he literally has earned a PhD in molecular biology and understands it really, really well, but he doesn't treat patients. That's a slight problem. And it's difficult to communicate these complex topics when you have a mind that works like Georgie. So, uh, in my efforts to understand this better and, and teach it, I encountered Jay Feldman's podcast and I've had some, I think I've had a few um, of his podcasts up for interviews that uh, he has done on the site before this interview. So some of you may be aware of that, but he, in my view, is, has put together the best compilation of practical understanding of how to implement Ray Pete's work and not only implement it, but to understand it, to, to practically do it. And what I love about Jay is that he's not dogmatic, which is really a rarity. I mean, it's so easy to become dogmatic in this field. He's not. He, he's all about individualizing and customizing for you, helping you understand and taking a very kind approach and relatively easy and simple to understand. So some of you may know, because I've let it out before, that I'm in the process of creating a master class in preparation for the next crisis, which I believe is inevitable. It's not a matter of if the next crisis is coming, it's only a matter of when. And Jay understands this too, which is why he's coming to us from Ecuador. He spent a few years uh, 
preparing for this strategy. And he's, he's found a nice little community in Ecuador that uh, can provide him what he needs, you know, the warmth, sunshine, vitamin D, food, local community. So he's got that dialed in, which is, you know, not surprising because he's such an impressive individual. Uh, but anyway, in the process of preparing this, I put together this masterclass. It occurred to me that this teaching Ray's work is really going to be one of the most important components of it. But I realized that I don't have the, the practical in the trenches training to do that well, at least at this point. I mean, I could do a decent job, but not as good as someone like Jay, who's been out there in the field working with this for such a long time. So I've decided that I'm going to integrate his work into the master class. Now, you don't have to wait for the master class to come out because I'm hoping to get it out this year, but it may not be. You can do his master class now, or at least my portion of the master class with his work, because he has a podcast that has, I believe, over 100 episodes. And I'm in the in the process of actually watching all of them. I'm on episode number 55 that I was watching this morning. And I would encourage you to do that. But don't start at the at the most recent. Go to the beginning. Start at episode one and work your way up. And, and you will be amazed and, and, and educated as to how to practically implement the, these strategies. So I would encourage you to do that now. You don't have to wait for my mass class. Just do it now. Start at episode one and work your way up and watch them all. And I think it'll become really, really clear to you how and why this, this approach works. And it's so darn effective. Now, I was watching episode 55 this morning. Mike, or, or um, Jay has a partner, a, a really good friend of his, a college buddy, and probably knew him before college, I suspect in high school. And they, they both started applying this information when they were teenagers. I mean, they've been dead a long time. And I felt really bad because, I mean, his, his good friend is Mike Fave, I think. And Mike shared that he, early on, he adopted, he list, went to my, my site and mentioned my site a few times and adopted some of the things I was teaching at the time, which is probably over a decade ago. And I felt so bad because he got damaged. He got hurt from applying that. And it was never my intention to do that. It was always to do the best I could with the information I had at the time. So please, Jay, extend my deep apologies to Mike because that wasn't intentional. Oh, of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. So, um, so that's enough of an intro. So not even a background and why I'm so excited to interview Jay. I, I specifically have a lot of practical questions that I want to dialogue with Jay that he doesn't really, that I haven't heard him at least discuss in the first 50 episodes on his podcast about this, because the issue is, especially in, in my audience, most people have been taught by me and others that low carb is good, that uh, the uh, carb is, you know, sugar is the devil. And it really is primarily responsible for all this, the pathology that we're seeing in, in society. And it, we know now it's not, that's not the case. I mean, if you've been studying this, you know, it's, it's the fat in the form of linoleic acid is the primary thing, but also not the, it's a, it's not a simple solution. There's no single magic bullet. It's a complex uh, treat, not triage, but a set of recommendations to follow, to help you get the enough, amount of the proper amount of nutrients to create the maximum amount of cellular energy. It's all about by see Pete's work is called bioenergetic medicine. And it's in the process of creating the optimal amount of cellular energy and the least amount of 
exhaust in the form of reactive oxygen species. And this diet works. There's not a micro doubt in my mind. And I'm just sadly disappointed and have to forgive myself for not finding out or understanding this earlier. But the, the questions I would think we should start with, Jay, is since so many people are watching this are on low carb and they're not convinced yet that they need to do this. So the before we get to the specific average, I think that the, the, the broader context, and I think that you would agree, although I haven't heard you discuss it explicitly on your podcast, is what is the primary cause of most disease? And, and I, before I encountered Pete's work, I thought it was insulin resistance. And I still think that's the issue because even with high linoleic acid, you're going to have massive insulin resistance. So it's insulin resistant. I'm wondering, the first question is, if you agree that it's insulin resistance, and if you do, what is a simple way to measure it? I was thinking it might be something as simple and inexpensive as a fasting insulin. I mean, maybe a fat glucose tolerance test might be better, but fasting insulin is easier, certainly, to implement. So what, what, what is your take on insulin resistance? Yeah, well, firstly, thank you so much for the introduction. I appreciate it. And I'm happy to be here. So yeah, I, I think as a starting place, as you were saying, I would always come back to the idea that the amount of cellular energy that's available is what's going to drive our health. And a lack of that energy is what's going to lead to disease processes, dysfunction, degeneration. And so when it comes to insulin resistance, for one, I think there's a bit of a misnomer. It's a helpful term for encapsulating a larger idea, but we get caught up in the idea of insulin. So I prefer if we're going to say that there is one, you know, what, it, what is the driver? It's mm -hmm. typically a lack of energy caused by issues with producing energy or inefficiencies in producing energy due to mitochondrial dysfunction. And that causes insulin resistance. So that's because your, your belief is that's the fundamental cause. Right. Okay. And that causes insulin resistance, right? So those things go hand in hand. And when we're talking about insulin resistance, we're talking about a situation where the cells aren't able to properly use glucose, the glucose builds up. And regardless of how much insulin we have, it's really hard to get more glucose into the cells. And we see rising blood sugar and all of the other downstream effects. And so I wouldn't disagree that insulin resistance is right there. I think it's just a matter of what we call it. Do we call it insulin resistance as the fundamental problem or energy dysfunction, you know, low metabolism? issues with energy production. So it's, you know, from my view, I would say that's where we start and insulin resistance is a cause of that and the only, or an effect of that. And the only reason why I would make that distinction or say that it's important is because I think with insulin resistance, we can get caught up in the idea that insulin is the problem and things that increase insulin will cause the cells to stop responding to insulin. And we need to figure out why the cells aren't responding to insulin. And if we get down to that deeper layer, it's really coming back to an issue with producing energy. Okay, so thank you, thank you for that perspective. And I, I suspect it's somewhat similar to vitamin D. And I, one of the course modules, I, the most important, one of the most important course, it's course number one that I put together is, is on sun exposure. And it wasn't vitamin D, it was sun exposure, but one of the artifacts of exposing your skin to sun, which you wisely chose, so I could order so you can live in, so you can get that year round without taking any, swallowing any vitamin D capsule, is that you're gonna get vitamin D but you're also gonna get many other benefits. Yet, if you were to use a simple marker to measure sun exposure, it might be vitamin D, assuming you weren't taking swallowing any vitamin D supplements. So if your vitamin D level was high, like mine is close, it's over 100 in the summer without having taken any vitamin D supplements for well over a decade, 
then that means I'm getting all the other benefits from exposing my skin to sun. So acknowledging that it's a more fundamental issue of not being able to create cellular energy. Would you agree though, that a simple fasting insulin might be a good biomarker that we could have to measure our efforts to restore cellular energy? Definitely. And it's a great comparison. They're a great analogy. And like the vitamin D situation, we always want to keep in mind the caveats where we can decrease fasting insulin or decrease glucose by avoiding carbohydrates, even if that's mm -hmm. not fixing the problem. So that's a really important distinction to make. But assuming that that's not the case, we're not in one of those exceptions, then yes. Looking at something like fasting insulin and other markers of insulin resistance, you mentioned the glucose tolerance test, which as you alluded to is a little bit less convenient. But in somebody who is consuming some amount of carbohydrates, looking at fasting insulin is a good marker of how well we're using the glucose and how well we're producing energy. Okay, good. I'm glad we're in agreement on that because it seems like, and it's a relatively inexpensive test. It's not going to cost you an arm and a leg. I mean, it probably costs less expensive than a vitamin D. So that's a good start. So I guess the practical implementation that I would so deeply appreciate your insights and feedback on is how does one progress from a low carb diet and addressing this insulin resistance because low carb diet will cause insulin resistance. There's no question it will. It's not appreciated because your insulin levels and glucose levels are low. So it's kind of hidden stealth insulin resistance. But how do you progress? Your typical person who's just found, saw the light and understands that, wow, I think I could do better by integrating some healthy carbohydrates into our diet. So what, what is your initial strategy to do that, to get them from low carb to healthy, high carbs? Yeah. And that's, it's a perfect question. And as you were alluding to, when we take out the carbs, we're just avoiding the problem. We haven't actually fixed the underlying energy dysfunction. And it's very similar to, I think, a, an analogy that we can all agree upon, which is the cholesterol, blood levels of cholesterol, not causing heart disease, mm -hmm. right? It's a scapegoat. It's a symptom, but it's not actually a driver there. And in the same way, I would say glucose and insulin are byproducts of this underlying issue with energy production that we see in elevated levels in insulin resistance and diabetes. So that's why we, again, we don't want to be blaming the carbohydrates. It's the fact that we can't use them well. And so when we've come to that conclusion and we're able to say, all right, I recognize that removing carbohydrates is not the solution. I want to be able to bring them back in, but I want to make sure that I'm using them well. How do we do that, right? How do we do that when coming from low carb? And this was something I did personally. I spent you know, quite a long time in ketosis and cyclical ketosis and various low carb iterations and, and fasting, fasting and all of that. Right, the whole mm -hmm. deal. You were there, been there and done that. It's not like you haven't explored that area. Absolutely. And most of the clients who I'm working with or a good portion are also coming from that place. And they've experienced the byproducts later on of poor sleep, you know, insomnia, increased anxiety sometimes, sometimes the, raising, uh, the rise in fasting glucose, uh, sometimes drops in testosterone, drops in T3, drops in energy, drops in performance in the gym. So I experienced many of those things. A lot of the clients I'm working with have also experienced those. And so now when we come to the point of, of recognizing that that wasn't a solution, it was just a Band-Aid that helps short term, but came in a long-term cost. What do we do in order to bring carbohydrates back in in a healthy way so that we improve our ability to utilize them and minimize any negative effects. I think the first place that we both agree on is avoiding the polyunsaturated fats. <laughs> that includes the seed oils, the omega-6s. I would throw the omega-3s in there as well. And I'm sure that's a longer discussion we can have another time, but 
taking out the polyunsaturated fats would be top of the list. And that's because they're really effective at interfering with our ability to produce energy and utilize glucose beyond all of the other negative effects there. So that would be step one is we want to make sure that we're avoiding the polyunsaturated fats and instead using monounsaturated and saturated fats as our fat sources. After that, the question would be, what types of carbohydrates do we bring in and in what amount? And my general starting place or my general mode of implementing any sort of intervention is always slow and steady. It's always careful because the slower and more carefully that we experiment and bring, you know, make changes, the easier it is to determine whether we might've made a mistake. Also, the more time we give our bodies to adjust to that, because as you were mentioning, if we're in low carb, we've caused insulin resistance and anyone who is low carb and then takes a glucose tolerance test will see that. So we need to bring the carbs in slowly to slowly upregulate the enzymes that, that increase carb utilization and, and conversion to energy. So slow and steady is always my approach there. And along with that, it's really important that we make sure that we're bringing in the types of carbohydrates that are not going to cause intestinal irritation or endotoxin production that we're going to digest really easily. Ideally that also have some good polyphenols and other nutrients, micronutrients along with them. And so normally the place I'd like to start is with some whole fruit. And again, starting very slow. One caveat here that we can come back to because I would, we can almost separate into two situations. One is when we have underlying gut issues, my, microbial overgrowth, bacterial overgrowth that cause a lot of endotoxin. And if we're dealing with a major issue there, we want to be really careful about introducing any fermentable carbohydrate. So that includes fibers that are in fruits and sometimes some other carbohydrates in fruits. And that might be a different situation where we want to focus on very low fermentable carbohydrate sources. And that might be leaning into fruit juice over fruit, for example, but just particular fruit juices. We'd want to be careful with apple juice, for example, because there are fermentable carbohydrates in there. So there's some nuance there, but the place I would generally start is small amounts of whole fruit, assuming that someone doesn't have underlying digestive issues. All right. So that's a really good point. And what um, symptoms or tests can be done to alert the person that they have these underlying digestive in, uh, issues, which may predispose them from complications that wouldn't occur if they didn't and, and implementing the, the, the whole fruits, which is the ideal if you can tolerate them. Yeah. So fortunately, symptoms are the easiest way to tell. And normally the symptoms are relatively clear. So if you start to bring in whole fruits and you're noticing increases in gas or bloating, if you're uh, noticing any gurgling, belching, or if you're feeling sluggish and lethargic after maybe the first short period of time, all of those could be signs of an intestinal issue. Another easy way to test would just be to have a bit of whole fruit sometimes and then have fruit juice at other times and see if you notice a major difference between those two scenarios. If you feel a lot better with the fruit juice, then that's a pretty clear sign that we were having some issues with the fermentable carbohydrates and we'll want to be really careful with those and work on restoring a proper microbiome. Whereas if we do better with the fruits or equal with both, and maybe we're not doing so well with either, that would be a sign that maybe we need to increase more slowly or consider some other support for increasing our utilization of the carbohydrates. And the other thing there is it could just take some time because what we see, and this is clear in the research, as we increase carbohydrate intake, it increases insulin sensitivity, but we have to go through the steps to get there. And when we're coming from zero or very low, it will take a little bit of time to shift the hormonal state, the mitochondrial enzymes, all of those things to, to help increase our utilization of the carbohydrates and improve or restore insulin sensitivity. 
And what's a typical range of time that you would anticipate? So I, again, I, I like to use symptoms as the clearest way to guide us. And so if we're starting by, let's say, just adding a piece of fruit with each meal. And so we're still, you know, carbohydrates are still pretty low at that point. Maybe we're talking 40 to 80 grams of carbs, depending on how much fruit we've had. That's, I think that's never going to be the end point, but you might want to stay there for a week, two weeks until just as long as you know that you're feeling better than you were prior, maybe you're seeing a bit of improvement in sleep, you're feeling a little bit better in terms of brain function or energy. If you're starting to notice that you're seeing maybe your appetite come up, which is actually a pretty good sign of your metabolic rate increasing. If you're starting to increase those things that, or see those things, that's a great sign. And I would say you can start to increase from there. If you're having any negative effects, that's when I would push the brakes a little bit and go slower. But that would be a starting place. And again, assuming that you're noticing the benefits, you could you know, add a second serving of fruit with each meal, right? Double it, uh, or maybe a little even slower than that and see how you're responding. Okay, so you're very conservative, slow approach, safe, safe journey towards getting optimally healthy. Uh, and what would be the end point? It seems from listening to your podcast that you're, you're, you and Mike both agree that the baseline for humans is about 150 grams of healthy carbs. If you're going to be healthy, unless you're like maybe 65 pound child or something, but about 150 grams, and it could go up as high as four, 500 or 600, depending on your activity and size level. Would that be the typical range? Yeah, definitely. And, and it depends on what line of evidence we want to go down. If we look at the amount of glucose output from the liver, when we first start fasting, uh, it actually, if we extrapolate that out, it, it comes out to about 220 grams per day. So that would suggest that in an optimal carb utilizing state, we would even have at least that 220 grams. And normally when we're looking at that research that looks at the amount of carbohydrates and maximum insulin sensitivity, you start to see minimal increases or improvements after the 250 gram mark. So after that, so I would normally say in the 150 to 250 is baseline for most people, okay. average size, all of the, you know, exceptions, and then adding on for there, from there, based on again, body size, based on, uh, activity, all of those things. That's good. I didn't realize it was actually even higher. So, cause that, you know, typically if you're a low carber, uh, like, like, uh, many people, 150 grams is a lot of carbs and that's still inadequate based on the studies you decided, which said to the basal output of glycogen produced by the liver is about 250 grams a day. Yeah. About, yeah, about 220. And that's, and the important caveat is that decreases over time. If we shift out of the utilization of glucose, our body tries to conserve it when we stop consuming mm -hmm. carbohydrates and we lean into, to fats. And so it's really hard to determine how much is really the baseline need. And so some of these studies look at what happens just in the first hour. And I think that's probably a better representation as opposed to looking over a 24 hour period where over that time you started to shift away from using glucose. Okay. So, and I just want to get back to some basic science with respect to the symptoms of whether you have a condition that would suggest that you have to be ultra careful and not have any, basically have fruit juices, not eat fruit because of the fiber could be a problem. So that, and it's because you're generating gas and the gas is a symptom of the fact that the carbohydrates you're eating are not being digested by you. You're, they're, they're traversing your stomach and your small intestine, going to the large intestine where they're digested or fermented by the bacteria there. And the part of the end products of that fermentation is gas. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one of the symptoms, I guess, would would you agree that one of the symptoms that you know you are eating, your at least your microbiome or your gut is healthy enough and you're eating the right types of foods is that you really have minimal gas production, either passing gas or, you know, it's flatulence or, or belching. Mm-hmm. Yeah, typically we want that to be pretty minimal. Yeah. yeah. And this is one of this, this is central. You can't overstate in the same way we can't overstate the importance of avoiding PUFA. We cannot overstate how much endotoxin, these bacterial byproducts destroy our health. And you see it in every chronic health state or chronic health condition, every degenerative condition, you see this mild endotoxemia, you see it in fatty liver disease and diabetes, obesity, uh, atherosclerosis, and, and on from there. And so this is one of the main reasons why people feel better. One of the main reasons why people feel better on a low carb diet or when they're fasting is because they're avoiding anything that's feeding the intestines. So if you are one of those people who felt way better and lost weight and noticed a bunch of improvements, there's two main reasons why that would be the case. One, as I mentioned, is reductions in endotoxin. And they see this in the research where they take mice that are on a low carb or ketogenic diet and then mice that aren't. The mice on the ketogenic diet get certain benefits, even in epilepsy, and they just transplant the microbiome and the other mice get the same benefits. They can also then introduce the endotoxin back and all those benefits go away. So we see this very clearly. We see it in other disease states as well with germ-free mice where they introduce antibiotics. It clears out all the bacteria, clears out the endotoxin. All of a sudden, fatty liver disease is gone or it can't be caused by the alcohol or fructose. So the gut is, is a huge, huge factor here. It can't be overstated. And again, if you were one of those people who felt much better going into low carb, you probably want to be pretty careful when bringing carbohydrates back in because it's likely that there are some overgrowths that weren't actually resolved. And so you might have issues with the fiber. And, and as you were saying, if you're producing gas, if you're feeling any intestinal discomfort, bloating, those types of things, that's a pretty clear sign that there's probably some excess endotoxin production going on as a byproduct of these bacteria feeding on what you're feeding them. And so that's a separate issue that we would want to resolve. And that brings us to the other possible reason why someone might be might feel much better on a low carb diet. And that's if they were already extremely insulin resistant going in, they were having a lot of trouble using glucose going in. And so switching to fat and potentially ketones led to a lot of relief. And if you were one of those people, this is also a situation. And again, this is why I suggest being careful and doing this slowly. That's likely also a situation where you want your utilization of the carbohydrates is going to have to be ramped up slowly and your capacity for that might be a little bit lower. And so we want to work on resolving that issue. Could be caused by endotoxin, could be caused by polyunsaturated fats, could be caused by nutrient deficiencies, could be caused by a lack of sleep and other forms of stress. But that's another situation. If you were, if you lost a lot of weight on low carb, if you were very insulin resistant before, we want to be particularly careful bringing carbohydrates back in. And that's one of the times that would warrant going a little slower. Again, if someone didn't have these major benefits on low carb, you might be able to bring in the carbs much faster and feel much better quicker. But that's why it's all dependent on the individual's context. That's a really good tip. So um, with respect to the endotoxin, uh, that another name for that is LPS or lipopolysaccharide. And it's a component mm-hmm. of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. So I'm wondering, at least my, my belief is that by gradually readjusting the foods and increasing the carbohydrates, you're actually going to change the microbiome of the gut and essentially competitively inhibit the growth of these bacteria so that you're going to be producing less endotoxin. Would that be a safe assumption or what, what is your belief of what goes on? Because 
Because, or, or are the gram positive also have some product that is an endotoxin that, that is detrimental? They do. So we can come back to that. But it's, it's a really, really important point to highlight. And something that when you see all these pieces fit together, it, it just makes so much sense. When you see the effects of something like whole fruit on the microbiome, you see the types of fiber alongside the polyphenols. They shape the microbiome in a particular way that reduces the harmful bacteria and supports some of the more beneficial bacteria. It's almost as if we evolved eating fruit and created a microbiome that was conducive with our physiology based on that. And so, and of course, I'm being a little facetious here. I think that's a, probably a large part of what, what happened. And so, again, when we're talking fruit or even root vegetables, potatoes, sweet potatoes, carrots, parsnips, all of those, the polyphenols in there have mild antimicrobial effects, mild antibiotic effects that help to clear out some of these harmful bacteria. So if you don't have a major overgrowth and you can slowly increase your consumption of these types of carbohydrate sources, you'll naturally start to see a shift, a beneficial shift in your microbiome. So again, we have that fine line between too many symptoms and needing to address it directly. But for someone else who's doing all right, it should happen on its own. And I think that's part of the beauty of it. Not to mention the presence of the carbohydrates in the intestines being incredibly anti-inflammatory as something that feeds the cells that line the intestines. And also not to mention it helps increase thyroid hormone, which will increase stomach acid and bile flow and motility. So a number of different processes going on here that help us maintain a healthy gut when we're consuming a carbohydrate rich diet from these sorts of sources. So I would say that is the natural byproduct, but as you meant, or as you had asked, there, there are certain, there are concerns with gram positive bacteria as well. So they produce a parallel toxin to LPS which is called LTA or lipotychoic acid. Oh, and it has a lot of, yeah, and it has a lot of similar effects. It's not studied as much. It's not used as widely in the research to cause inflammation and interfere with mitochondrial function, but it does seem to have very parallel effects. And so what that essentially means is we can't chalk it all down to gram negative versus gram positive, you know, one being beneficial, one being harmful, but rather we want to, you know, there's different species of bacteria within both gram positive and gram negative that are beneficial and that are relatively harmful. And the good news is we don't have to go and sort out each of which they are, which can be helpful to go through as well. But if we're just consuming a healthy carbohydrate rich diet, that's also rich in polyphenols, it'll naturally shape our microbiome to get rid of the more harmful ones. Not to mention it'll keep our, you know, low intestinal permeability and good motility, which if there are any toxins produced, It'll help those be cleared out much quicker and prevent them from entering the bloodstream. Plus, if we're consuming saturated, monounsaturated fats, those also have antimicrobial effects. Uh, bile also has an antimicrobial effect. So consuming enough fat is also really supportive for our digestion through those means. And this is part of why I'd be careful with a super low-fat diet. And these sorts of fats will also help to detoxify the endotoxin or LTA as well from the intestines. They carry them directly to the liver to be detoxified. So there's a, again, we, it's helpful to look at each of these steps because sometimes we need to address them directly, but the good news is as long as we're having a quote, healthy diet, which of course we've, it can mean different things depending on who we're talking to, but these things luckily will sort themselves out. So the, it's important to understand, at least from my perspective, that the rapey community is not homogenous, that there's actually a wide range of uh, recommendations that exist and specifically on this topic, because there's a fair percentage of the peak community who advocate and actually do themselves gut sterilization with antibiotics. And, uh, I know, uh, Danny 
uh, Rhett, Roddy, and Georgia have discussed that on their podcast and you know the different antibiotics that can be used. You know, from a natural physician perspective, there's obviously concerns, and some antibiotics are worse than others, much worse. It should never, almost never be taken unless it's a life or death situation. But nevertheless, I still think that ideally it's best to avoid. And I'm wondering what your perspective is. Because I, I, I don't think I've ever heard you advocate antibiotics directly, although I imagine there might be a, a situation, a rare uh, an anomaly where that may be the best uh, option. But what's your view on the antibiotic serialization that many of the peak community advocate? Yeah, so it very much depends on the individual. If we're dealing with a clear overgrowth, let's say in the small intestine, I think it's really important to help clear that out. And it may happen on its own when we get thyroid function in place and take out some of the you know anti-nutrient-containing foods and maybe avoid the fibers for a period of time. But... If not, I think it can really help to have some version of antibiotics, whether it's pharmaceutical or herbal or from the food, to help support that, to help clear those out. It's rare that I go to antibiotics for SIBO unless we're looking at something like rifaximin uh, or maybe neomycin, depending if it's methane dominant or, or hydrogen dominant, where rifaximin only affects the small intestine, for example. So we're not interfering with the large intestinal microbiome. And that can be extremely helpful if somebody's had really intense small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that they can't clear out. So there might be a place for something like rifaximin. And if it's methane dominant, maybe rifaximin alongside neomycin. But it's neomycin will affect the large intestine. And I'll also say that this is never the first route that I would go. But, and but both, I think there's both a, of those are not absorbed systemically, right? Right. Okay. Right. Well, well like yeah. almost all other antibiotics, you're not going to get it in your blood. It's just it stays topical on the surface of the intestine. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to restoring the large intestinal microbiome, again, I'd prefer not to do it with antibiotics because they will clear out both beneficial and harmful bacteria. And I think having a sterile large intestine is not a, is not really viable in, in a modern, in a, in a, in the world, right? In a lab, that's one thing, but I think as far as a large intestine goes, not in a lab, not in a rat in a lab, we need to have some bacteria there. Otherwise, we're very susceptible to infection from the harmful bacteria. But there are situations where that microbiome is so out of whack that just adjusting the diet and maybe using some herbal microbials, antimicrobials, uh, maybe using some spore-based probiotics, maybe those things aren't enough to rebalance the microbiome. And I might look to antibiotics at that point where someone has maybe some sort of signs of systemic infection that we're not able to clear. Again, it would be very particular antibiotics, and I tend to recommend actually low-dose antibiotics for a longer period of time as opposed to a high dose. But this is, again, a rare, relatively rare instance. I'm normally not using these for most people. Okay, I thought that was the case. So thank you for expanding on that. Maybe you can shift now to the other types of carbohydrates, because even if you, if you don't need these antibiotic approaches and you have a relatively healthy gut, you're not having bloating gas symptoms. Uh, you just may develop those if you introduce the wrong type of carbohydrates because some are should be avoided assiduously and really shouldn't be consumed because they're not really ideal for human health because you you can't digest them and they only serve as fuel for the bacteria in the large intestine so why don't you review that because that seems to be another part of the puzzle that this complex puzzle actually yeah so we started, we mentioned fruit already, and fruit isn't just whole fruit, but it also could be fruit juice, it can be frozen fruit, dried fruit, 
depending on I, your I, circumstances. Speaking, I'm sorry for the interruption, but dried fruit, uh, there is some, I was actually going to look this up, but does it, there are specific types of dried fruit because I believe that they use, I'm not sure what the preserve is like nitrates or something in there that can sulfur be dioxide, oh, sulfur dioxide. That's it. The sulfur dioxide. Yeah. So is what, what are the guidelines for selecting a healthy dried fruit? So depending on the type, typically organic, of course, there are some types of fruits that actually aren't, you know, there aren't, isn't much pesticide use, so we don't need to choose organic, but I generally think it's better quality anyway. So that'd be part one. I would suggest no sulfur dioxide, no sulfites, uh, no artificial colors. So you can get some pretty bad quality dried fruit that has all of those things in it. Uh, so none of those, it should just be pure, whatever the fruit is and nothing else. When it comes to some of the berries, they'll use sunflower oil to prevent them from all sticking together. Wow. But the amount is really, really okay. tiny. Okay. If you look at a serving size, it'll say, you know, 40 grams of carbs, zero fat, zero grams of fat. So the amount of sunflower oil used is so small that That's I probably bad. wouldn't concern myself with it. Some people are so concerned because they see sunflower oil, but it's actually nearly none. So yeah, organic and the only real ingredient should be the fruit itself. No added sugar, which is really rare. No colors, nothing like that. And then we just have to be careful about whether someone does well with fiber or not, because you're going to get a concentrated dose of it with the dried fruit, uh, even more so than you would get with the whole fruit. Okay, good. Thanks. All right. So you, I'll let you go on with the other types of carbohydrates that could be problematic. So we have fruit as a, as a really great one. Another great one, as I mentioned, if you tolerate it well, depending on your gut health and your insulin sensitivity would be the root vegetables, potatoes, sweet potatoes, uh, parsnips, carrots, all of those. And we could throw white rice in there as well, uh, as long as these are all really well cooked. And often I would recommend consumed with some form of saturated fat as a way to make sure that they aren't feeding the bacteria because of the antimicrobial effect of the saturated fat uh, and also the bile stimulation. So that would be another really great source. Those are probably the two main sources. And along with that, honey, good quality honey and good quality maple syrup, I think can also fit into those categories as Again, in these categories, we're talking about high nutrient, high polyphenol, some fiber for people who tolerate it well. These would be the best carbohydrate sources. We can then get into the some maybe more of the gray area where we have the grains that are maybe well processed, traditionally processed, fermented, soaked and sprouted. Those can be okay. I don't normally recommend starting with those because even if, let's say, you have sourdough bread that's long fermented, there's still going to be some gluten in there. Some people really don't respond well to that among other anti-nutrients in there. So the soaked, sprouted, fermented grains are somewhere in the middle there. Some people tolerate them to some extent, but I wouldn't put them in the opt optimal category. They're somewhere in the middle. On the kind of more harmful end, we have unprocessed grains, right? Typical whole wheat or wheat flour, uh, um, you know, and, and I guess all the others that fall in there, brown rice, those kinds of things. And those would be ones that are typically on my avoid list. They're very high in the anti-nutrients, which impair all aspects of our digestion. They can reduce stomach acid, reduce protein digestion, starch digestion. You're consuming starch. That's not a good combination. They can reduce mineral absorption, vitamin absorption. So for a number of, number of reasons, we want to avoid the anti-nutrients that are in the grains and also sometimes in the skins of the root vegetables. So if you're eating potato, sweet potato, I recommend not consuming the skin for that reason. Well, the, the grains also have lots of linoleic acid too. 
Yeah, they typically do. Of course, not as much as in the concentrated yeah. seed oils. Yeah, but sure. Yes, they, but they, they, they do count. The, you know, yeah. the average person is taking way too much and it takes three years to get it down to healthy levels. So there's no sense in adding extra for sure. Of course. Yeah, yeah of course. And all of this is then we're not even talking about any sort of processed food that would have seed oils in it and everything. So when we're talking about carbohydrates, I wouldn't consider those anywhere near the list that we would want to go toward. Yeah, that is actually, a, you know, it, when you're making a recommendation so, to someone who doesn't really want to dive deep into the weeds like we're doing now, one of the simplest and most accurate recommendation is you cannot have any processed foods, simply zero. They eliminate them from your diet, and that's going to have a radical improvement just by that one simple recommendation. Definitely. Yeah. And, and later on, when someone's doing well and they want to have more variety, there are decent, quote, processed food options that aren't so bad. I mean, there's potato chips cooked in olive oil, right? And that's not so bad if, you're, if you need a snack and you're doing okay in other areas. How about coconut you know, They cook them in coconut oil, too? Yeah, that's even better, but they're harder and harder to find. You know, the main brands that were cooking them in coconut oil have largely stopped and they really? switched. Really? I didn't even know that that was a, a, a viable commercial option, that it was even, no, anyone made that. Well, maybe it's not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So there are some, quote, processed food options where you can make healthy alternatives to those things. Uh, so I don't think it's a necessarily never, but occasional and only if you're already doing pretty well health-wise and doing well with the carbohydrates. Okay. Well, thank you for that dis uh, di distinction. All right. So um, that's been really helpful. But, okay. So, yeah, the grains you have to be careful of in general for the reasons you discussed. So let's get back to a person who has insulin resistance based on the fasting insulin level and yet had done low carb and now is eating, it was been on a program for six months or so. And still I, I, the, the ideal fasting insulin measurement should be below three. Um, that's, that's your goal. And if it's lower, that's even better. Uh, but say there are like seven or eight, I mean, do, is it, do you use this as a tool to help determine their metabolic flexibility? Because what I neglected to mention earlier, it's so important. I've said it many times, and I'm sure you're aware of it, that there, there was a study published last year in uh, Journal of American College of Cardiology that was based on NHANES data that, sh that studied it from 2018. And they found that 14 out of 15 people, 93% of the population were metabolically inflexible. And that's, in my view, they use a variety of clinical characteristics, but essentially that's insulin resistance. So, and that data was five years old, five years old. So it's probably about 95% of the people, at least 19 out of 20. So if we, if we agree that insulin resistance or insulin fasting insulin is the best way to measure that metabolic flexibility, I, it would seem that would be a simple, inexpensive strategy to, to monitor your progress through this program. So I'm wondering what you do when you encounter a person who, who's not at that three level, still relatively high on multiple times, uh, do you just keep going with the program or is there anything special, any type of supplements or anything, any other advice you'd have for that type of individual? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And I, I normally would look for around a level five or lower uh, as far as insulin levels go. But in any case, there, the other thing I would throw in there is symptom wise, if somebody is struggling to improve their or restore their insulin sensitivity will probably know through other ways as well. They might be gaining weight, they, their energy might be low. So if those things are happening, we can also assume that there's 
some sort of other issue going on, could be digestive, could be issues with carb metabolism, whatever it is. And so that's normally something we can just see day to day, week to week, month to month without just needing the test. But of course, corroborating those things with the test is helpful. And looking at other blood markers is helpful too, to help us identify where that problem actually is. And fasting insulin can help with that. In that situation, there are a number of things I would go to. But again, the question is, what is causing the issue with converting those carbohydrates to energy? Mm -hmm. We talked about endotoxin being a huge one. That's one of the more common ones if someone's already cut out the polyunsaturated fats. Endotoxin is really common. So we want to make sure that we've fixed everything up gut-wise. If not, that would be my, my target. If that's doing pretty well and we're generally you know, not overstressing, we're getting some good comfortable movement in, and you know we're eating carbohydrates from the right sources and we're still not seeing the benefits that we'd look we were looking for we're still not seeing the restoration of insulin sensitivity then i might look for some other support for glucose metabolism uh, and that could be b vitamins b1 and b3 in particular i know you've talked a lot about niacinamide thiamine is another one that are crucial for producing energy from carbohydrates and it's not just those two biotin is involved vitamin b5 is involved so a number of the b vitamins are incredibly important. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. So supplementing with those would be potentially warranted there. And in general, those are things I see a ton of benefits from in terms of liver health, digestive health, uh, just lowering stress, improving insulin sensitivity. So that would be something I'd look to there. I would also be looking at other hormonal uh, indications. I'd be looking at thyroid status at that point, mm -hmm. uh, because if we've made some of these shifts, but we're not seeing the conversion from T4 to T3, or not seeing good thyroid hormone production, that could be a higher level issue that's causing a ton of things farther down the chain. And that can include insulin insensitivity, insulin resistance. So if that's the case, I would look toward doing everything we can to restore that. And if not, maybe looking to some supplementation to support that either with the T4, T3 hormones, maybe sometimes just with T3, depending on the instance, but that's something I would consider. I would also look at the steroid sex hormone production uh, for women looking at whether there's maybe too high of uh, estrogen, maybe not enough progesterone, that can be another huge factor here that can drive or contribute to insulin resistance. For men, I'd be looking at low testosterone. So I know you've talked through some of those hormones and there's certainly a place for things like pregnenolone, mm -hmm. progesterone, maybe a bit of DHEA to help support that hormonal state as well. And sometimes that's more of the level that's causing the insulin resistance rather than mm -hmm. something within the mitochondria per se. Yeah, I didn't realize that was so intimately connected. That's great. So um, thank you for sharing that. Now, let's get back to the, the basics with respect to what is the ideal feel for a body. And for the longest time I was teaching, it was fat. That was my understanding of, of mitochondrial physiology. And I, of course, I could pull up studies to justify that. Now I've learned is that, it, that it is not the case that beta oxidation of those long chain fats is actually going to cause 30 to 40 times as much reactive oxygen species is not going to generate the ideal fuel with the minimal amount of oxidative species. So I'd like you to discuss that. And actually, one of the justifications for ha having high amounts of fat, I, I was thinking about asking this when you were discussing the endotoxin is that it, the generation of short chain fatty acids in the intestine, specifically really small ones like, like butyrate, which is a poor carbon uh, fat, 
is, is thought to be highly beneficial and nourishing for the enterocytes, the, the cells lining the intestine. So do you just think that, do you believe that that's going to help happen normally when you're eating healthy or, and that there's no additional benefit to adding supplemental butyric acid or uh, extra fat to produce that butyric acid? Well, most supplemental butyrate doesn't actually make it to the large intestine. Yeah, you have to use it uh, as a repository. <laughs> right. You could do that or you can feed fiber. So things like apple pectin, mm -hmm. which is just, a, you know, the fiber from apples will increase the production of butyrate. And so that's my preferred route. If we're getting fibers from fruits mm -hmm. and we're able to handle them, we have a decent, healthy microbiome, then we're naturally going to be producing some amount of those short chain fatty acids. And I think that's, okay. that's quote normal and healthy. You know, I, I think when we look at the interactions between the bacteria, you have the ones who produce short chain fatty acids, the ones that consume them, you have this whole ecosystem, as you said, the lining, you know, those cells that line the intestines use them as well. So yeah, I think that's a part of, okay. a part of all of this, but I don't think we necessarily want to consume fats for that okay. effect. So getting back to the mitochondria, one of the benefits of optimizing the fuel in the mitochondria and having it be primarily glucose is that you're going to generate two interesting byproducts and molecules. One is uh, uh, metabolic water, otherwise known as deuterium depleted water, so it doesn't plug up the ATP synthase, and also carbon dioxide, which is commonly thought of as a waste product. But Pete has made it abundantly clear that this is a, a massively important molecule and a far superior and more important vasodilator than nitric oxide. It is the primary one, is, is carbon dioxide. And when you are low on carbon dioxide, you, you, you can't be optimally healthy. So, and, and if you're burning oxidizing fat in your mitochondria rather than glucose, you're not going to generate as much. And it also serves another role as protecting the proteins from glyco like being glycosylated because they, they Pete discusses it, but it attaches to very specific sites on the proteins that essentially creates this shield, this bulletproof shield around them that prevents this glycosylation. So maybe you could discuss that and, you know, the optimal fuel that we were designed to have to eat. Yeah. Yeah. And the carbon dioxide also protects against lipid peroxidation. You know, it counteracts the reactive oxygen and nitrogen species. So a lot of benefits there, but to zoom out, I think it's always helpful to put this in the larger biological context. And so anything, any situation where we are starved, where we're under major stress, when things are dysfunctional, we shift into fat oxidation, fat burning. And this includes when we're not eating anything, right? Mm -hmm. This is why when we're fasting or you know, we'll shift into ketosis eventually. And also we can mimic those states by going on a low carb, high fat diet, and low protein. And the biological context there is our bodies view that as a situation when we're under stress, when we don't have a lot of fuel available, you know, when they're in a famine, when they need, when we need to survive for a long period of time. And in a situation like that, we want to decrease our metabolic rate. We don't want to use a lot of energy on reproduction, on cognition, on digestion, on growth and repair, we want to conserve energy because we don't know when we're getting food again. If we're starving, we don't want to keep our metabolic rate super high because we won't survive very long. So everything around fat burning involves a slowing of the metabolic rate. And we, we see this again on that bigger picture level. We see it when we look at thyroid hormone conversion, which gets impaired when we're low in you know, carbohydrate intake. We see it in terms of testosterone. And we also see it on the mitochondrial level. 
because on the mitochondria level, that's where this all starts. That's how our body senses, whether it's burning the fats or the carbs. And when it's burning fats, it has a number of different places that slow down the actual respiration that slow down the conversion from the fats to energy. And again, this is all healthy and adaptive in that it allows us to survive if we're starving, but it's not ideal for thriving. It's not ideal for optimal function. It's not ideal for reproduction, right? Our bodies don't want to reproduce if there's not food available. It's not ideal for high level cognition, high order thinking. So when we zoom into the mitochondria, we see all of this happening in the biochemical levels. What we see is that the primary difference, you know, between glycolysis, the starting of burning carbs and the beta oxidation of the fats is a difference in the amount of NADH and FADH2 that gets produced. And when we then finish out through the Krebs cycle and then go to the electron transport chain, depending on the length of the fatty acid, there will be considerably more, sometimes 250% as much FADH2 relative to NADH. And what happens is we have, because we have this major drop off of electrons at, at complex two through the FADH2 relative to the complex one, what we end up with is a, what you've described before, reverse electron transport. The reason for this is because stress. I know the term for it is reductive. Exactly. Reductive stress. And that's because complex one and complex two both use the CoQ electron acceptor. And so if you're favoring complex two, you're going to reduce the amount of electrons that can be dropped off at, at complex one. And you're going to reduce the amount of electrons at complex one that can keep going down the chain. So you get a buildup there and you get this reverse electron transport and major production of reactive oxygen species at complex one. The other thing that happens is because of this buildup at complex one, the NADH can't drop off its electrons. And so you get this buildup of NADH relative to NAD. And our bodies are really smart when they see this because this then affects everything farther up the chain. It affects various steps of the Krebs cycle. There's three different steps that need the NAD. So each of those get reduced. The activity of those steps gets reduced. So we're slowing the activity through the Krebs cycle. We're getting buildups of citrate, for example, that increases the synthesis of fat. And that get, gets built up even further. We end up with a buildup of acetyl-CoA, so that reduces the conversion of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, which also is dependent on NAD. So we've got two ways that that's being inhibited. And then when you look back up at glycolysis, there's a number of steps there that get inhibited as well due to this high NADH to NAD ratio, this high reduced state of the mitochondria. So that is just a part of the natural breaking mechanism that happens to make sure that when we're burning fats, we're doing it slowly. And we produce a lot of reactive oxygen species, which also slows this down. What it will often do is because of the potential damage here, the potential lipid peroxidation and all the other you know, DNA damage that happens as a result of this is then you'll induce eventually, you'll induce things like uncoupling, which mm -hmm. will fully stop our ATP production. So we've got a number of these different mechanisms that basically are signals, right? It's telling our body that when we're burning fats, we need to slow everything down. We need to slow our metabolic rate. And we're going to be producing a lot more of these reactive oxygen species. We're going to be slowing things down at the electron transport chain. And as we're discussing, this is not ideal. If energy is the currency of our health, if that's what allows us to function and get us out of this constant stress state. And, you know, the main thing that's going to oppose cortisol, get our thyroid up, get our reproductive activity up, get our digestion up, liver health, all of those things. We don't want to be relying on, on fat burning. Again, outside of those cases where we really don't want much energy, like a muscle at rest. But when we're talking about the tissues that need it, we need that energy. And so that's where, that's the crux of this difference between the carbon fat burning. And then, as you mentioned, we have the CO2, the cherry on top, although it's really just as much, uh, of just as much importance as all these others, because it protects against 
the oxidative stress, so to speak, or reductive stress, uh, as well as being the main thing that oxygenates the cell, which keeps respiration going faster. Again, that's another breaking mechanism is the cell will take up less oxygen because it's producing less CO2, which it needs for that uh, uptake of oxygen at the cell. So yeah, that's unfortunately, you know, I was in, in the low carb sphere as well and got hooked on the idea that for, you know, sugar burning is, is the one that's the, the unhealthy fuel and produces all the oxidative stress and everything, but totally, uh, yeah, missing what's actually going backwards. Yeah. And that was a very excellent description metabolically. You really understand the science very well. So thank you for, for sharing that. That was excellent. And so basically when you shift to burning fat or oxidizing fat in the mitochondria, that's a metabolic inhibitor. And you can really throttle back your thyroid gland. And of course, the conventional approach or even the natural medicine approach is to use thyroid supplements. Now, if you're a conventional medical doctor, this is actually one of the ways you differentiate between a conventional medical doctor and a natural medical doctor is the type of thyroid hormone they're prescribing. So they would prescribe Synthroid, you know, or just thyroxin, no, no uh, cytomel at all, or, or natural desiccated thyroid. So, but that's not the solution, which is I love in your, with your work, because actually you did a whole series earlier this year with Mike, uh, I think it was three or four hours. I mean, it was the most exhaustive, comprehensive review of how to assess thyroid function. So thank you for that. It, it is absolutely terrific. If you have a thyroid issue, I highly recommend reviewing that. But the end result, like in shortcut to the four hours watching it, is that thyroid hormone is not the first step. That is not how you treat thyroid. You've got to fix the problem at a foundational level. And you don't want to be burning fat as your primary fuel, because that's definitely, as you so well stated, going to slow things down. And then I suspect, I've implied from listening to your podcast that the single most important reason why you find that to, to address in the foundational cause of people with thyroid dysfunction is they're not eating enough fuel. And, and actually, this is a good point too. You, you differentiate between the term fuel and energy. So maybe go in there and address the thyroid issue with respect to not getting enough calories. I mean, they're actually below the, the minimum required to sustain their, their, their weight, many people. I mean, is that your experience in treating people with this issue? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it's really tragic because I think the number one worst thing we can do, maybe, well, maybe we can debate. I don't know whether it's <laughs> linoleic acid or under eating. It's a, it's a hard one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. tell you what's even worse in both those under eating with primarily linoleic acid. <laughs> Definitely. And that's probably the case in, <laughs> in most situations. Yeah. So we were talking about this on the mitochondria and what happens is that lack of energy triggers the stress hormones. These are the main signals that start us off, whether our blood sugar drops or we have low energy, whatever it is. And these stress hormones tell our body, hey, we've got an emergency right now. Long-term, if this continues, we're gonna have to slow things down. And they do that by then regulating things at the thyroid, decreasing thyroid hormone production and conversion, decreasing testosterone production, a number of other factors. I mean, we know the havoc that cortisol wreaks and the glucocorticoids wreak. And so, when we, coming back to the, the well, I guess there's, there's two questions here. So one is the thyroid side, as you were saying, mm -hmm. that is just a response to a state where we're in a lack of energy, right? 
It's a, it's the main metabolic regulator, the main thing determining our metabolic rate. And it will turn down, which is great because if we need to survive when we're starving, we want a low thyroid, you know, we want low thyroid activity, but it's going to come at a cost of our health. And that's not ideal for us on the individual level or community or species level or anything like that. So that's part one. But as you were saying, when it comes to the things affecting how much energy we produce, we can talk about carbs versus fat. We can talk about nutrients. We can talk about endotoxin. But if there's not enough fuel coming in, we're never going to have enough energy. We're going to trigger stress. That's how we're going to have to get our energy. And that fuel coming in is calories. and Or we can call it calories. It's carbs, fats, protein. And mostly the carbs and fats that are going to be used as fuel. And, if, and it's a really important distinction because when we call calories energy, when we call these macronutrients energy, we're ignoring everything that goes into the conversion from them to energy. And what that leads to is this idea that when we're gaining weight or when we're overweight, that was from consuming too many calories, too much energy. But what it, the actual problem is we're consuming maybe a normal amount of fuel of calories, but we're not able to convert it to energy. So then we end up storing it as body fat. And what th this is really great news because what it means is that the eat less exercise more narrative, the idea that when we're having an issue, when we're overweight, we just need to eat less <laughs> is totally missing the point, totally missing what the actual problem is, which is that we're not using the fuel that's coming in. And that's probably because the type of fuel coming in might be high in linoleic acid <laughs> and PUFA. It might be, you know, it might have a number of different issues, but the, the problem is not how much we're eating. And when we undereat, and I was totally a victim of this, I underate for a very long time. And I, I, again, as I was saying, I think this was the worst thing I could have ever done for my health. And so many people who I'm working with, again, who come to me are definitely uh, under eating. It is guaranteeing that we're going to turn down our thyroid. We're going to turn down our reproductive hormones. We're going to be in a, in a constant stress state. And that's going to lead to degradation of muscle, of bone, of organ function. It's a, it's a guaranteed way to cause problems. And instead, the good news is we can eat ideally even more than we're quote supposed to even more than we want to based on our our estimated you know calorie expenditure and if we're converting it really well to energy we can still be losing body fat because that will still have fat release from the fat stores without storing anything because we're converting it all to energy and that also means we can have repair of the degenerated areas it means we can upregulate our reproductive function we can upregulate our cognitive function we can upregulate our digestive function. Everything is dependent on this energy. So if we can fix that problem and get to a point where we're eating an extra 500, 1,000, 1,500 calories from where we were before and maintain our weight, that is, that's a huge win right there. And so in talking about this on a practical sense, when I'm working with somebody who wants to lose weight as much as possible, and I know this is difficult often mentally, but I always like to have the weight loss be a secondary goal or a goal that we address later. Because if we can get you to a point where you're eating an extra 500 or 1,000 calories and maintaining your weight, that will often naturally lead to weight loss. Because what that's going to mean long-term is we're turning down our stress hormones, we're turning up our thyroid, and the stress hormones cause weight gain, by the way, like cortisol causes mm -hmm. the deposition of, of fat in the fat stores. Uh, we're turning up you know, testosterone or progesterone, depending on you know, men or women. And those things will naturally lead to weight loss without needing to restrict, without needing to cut the calories. And without having the constant hunger and cravings that we're told that we just have to live with in order to lose weight. I mean, that is, that's the sentence, right? We're supposed to spend our whole lives restricting and hunger, like hungry in order to lose weight. And the reality, the, the beautiful reality is it doesn't actually have to be that way, but it requires that we consider what's going on, what's impairing the conversion from the fuel that's coming into energy and fixing that. So that way we can have 
enough food. We're not having the constant hunger and cravings and we can have the weight loss too and the improvements in insulin sensitivity and all of the benefits that come with it. Yeah, that is the really, really good news because you get to eat, you get to enjoy life. You don't have to deprive yourself in an effort to achieve and attain the ideal weight. And it's just such massive confusion around this. And to this day, the, com the, the mantra of conventional medicine is it's, it's all about the calories. Calories in, calories out. It's not, nothing could be further from the truth. It's, it's, it's your ability to process those calories and convert it into fuel and generate energy, cellular energy. So you're doing such a great job on that. And just maybe you can give us some ranges typically that, that you find that not, that, uh, with understanding that calorie it's not about the calories, but the calories are a good barometer, a gauge of the amount of fuel, potential fuel that you can convert to energy. So I mean, what is a typical scenario people you see or have seen they're coming in with, are they eating like 2000 calories and they need 2,500 or 3000 and, and maybe give the ranges for women, women and men with respect to typical, you know, their typical woman for five, seven, five, eight, and a man of five, 10, six foot and how many calories they would need with normal activity. Sure. And as you said, calories are not a perfect measure, but it's the only measure we have or the most accurate measure we have for the amount of fuel that's coming in, the amount of potential energy that's coming in. So uh, it's a helpful one to use. I will say that when I was low carb and fasting, I had decreased my metabolic rate so much that I was getting by at around 2,400 calories a day at right around the same body weight that I am now when I'm eating 4,000 more or less. How much do you, weigh, less, do you weigh now? Like 182, 183. Oh, geez. We're like within a pound of each other. <laughs> so... You're, that, and that was 4,000 calories. Yeah. Somewhere in the, maybe the high 3000s to wow. around 4,000. And do you do a lot? Are you training a lot with exercise? Oh, uh, about twice a week. Once, <laughs> once a week will be like kickboxing, Muay Thai, MMA, and once will be some weight training. Uh, other than that, I'm walking and okay. you know, I'm moving, yeah. but I'm not okay. doing structured workouts. Okay. Wow. 4,000 calories. Okay, good. All right. So I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, no problem. And I will say just for reference, for people who are coming in low calorie, sometimes a bit of weight gain will happen and that's okay, but it will come back down. And I see that I saw that with myself, I didn't stay at that 183, 185. I shot up for a period of time and eventually came back down. And I've seen that with a number of clients, as I was saying, the goal is bump those calories up and increase your metabolic rate. Maybe we're gaining a little bit of weight alongside that, but less than the regain that we always get with the yo-yo dieting and all of that. And it will then come down later on. And when it does come down, it won't be because we're restricting. It won't be because we're, you know, spending hours at the gym every day. It'll be because we're, we're improving our health and the weight will come down as a byproduct. But as a, so what I was kind of getting at there is our ideal amount of calories can totally vary based on where we're at in our metabolic state and how old we are and how active we are. So, you know, in general, it's very hard to throw specific numbers. I do think as a starting place, just to get an idea, if you use any of the typical calorie you know, formulas, or if you use your Apple Watch or Fitbit or whatever it is that you use, have it tell you what it estimates your calories to be. And I would say that's a minimum like, that we want to get to as a starting place. We'll probably want to go above that. But if you're under that and you're gaining weight or maintaining your weight, that's a sign that your metabolic rate's pretty low. Mm -hmm. So I think for most people, that's an easy way to start and you can plug in your weight and height and age and activity level. And it gives you a rough estimate. And I would say, just start with that as an ideal starting point, minimum point. Most people are eating below that. 
and then work your way up, but don't force it. Just use your hunger cues and your cravings and intuition in, that, in those ways. And as I was saying at the start, the slower and more carefully we go, the less likely we are to, to have, to kind of uh, go off the path or have negative symptoms or gain weight. A little bit of that might happen here and there, and that's okay as long as we're still noticing other health benefits along the way, but it's something we want to be careful about. I wouldn't recommend that anybody, you know, jumps in by adding 1500 calories a day to their, to their current diet in the vast majority of cases, because I think there will be some rebound weight gain. I will throw the caveat in there for some people that's worth it for some people. And I guess I was in this camp, they had restricted so heavily had been under eating for so long that they're okay with gaining five, 10, 15 pounds and going through the kind of refeeding phase, knowing that it, that they're going to feel way better during that time. And eventually that weight will come back down. Sometimes that's, that's easier and better for the individual than going slow and steady. So we have to take it on an individual basis, but there was a great study, a great paper, a pretty large study, which was the Minnesota starvation experiment, where they kind of looked at, at what happens when we go low calorie for a while and then what the refeeding is like. And so this was just as a starting place, this was young men in their twenties and the average weight was about 150 pounds. And as a starting place, they were eating about 3,300 calories a day. That was their maintenance going into the study. So for one, that just tells us how much things have changed. The study was from 50 plus years ago, uh, about 70 years ago, I think. And so we can see how much metabolic rates have changed from then till now. You don't see very many 150 pound people, even men in their twenties eating 3,300 calories a day. But anyway, so that was going into the study. They then put these participants on an 1800 calorie a day diet. And this was trying to test what was happening during, I believe it was World War II, trying to see what was going on as a result of the rationing diets. And so they put them on 1800 calories. And if you read the reports of what these people experienced, I mean, it was astounding. They were dysfunctional. They couldn't open doors. They couldn't focus in classes. A couple had to be taken out of the study because they were eating chewing gum and stealing food out of garbage cans. One, one in particular stole, I think stole from a store, raw rutabagas and was eating raw rutabagas. So, th so these people were <laughs> totally dysfunctional. And this was only for several months. It wasn't like, uh, you know, they were on this for an extended period of time. And this was an 1800 calorie a day diet which so many people are surviving on right now and don't even realize how much it's affecting them. But so mood wise, physically, there's no libido. They would talk about how they would watch movies, you know, they would go to the movies with their significant other maybe, or just, you know, on their own. And they had no interest in anything other than the food. There would be sex scenes, love scenes, and they had no interest at all. It was just, it was just only anytime they would see food, that was all they would remember. They would have nightmares and all sorts of things. So anyway, this was, obviously severely, severely affecting them. And then they tried refeeding them. And so they put them on something like a 2300 calorie diet, a 2500 calorie diet, a 3000 calorie diet. And they had to increase all of them back up to, I think it was like 3500 calories because they weren't recovering quick enough at the small increases that they had. And for some of them, their recovery from this semi-starvation, which was again, I believe six months, the recovery from that six month period took as long as two years. Wow. And when some of them, they, they had refed at the 3,500 calorie level or so for several, I think it was for a couple months. Some of them, when they got out of the study, they ate so much after that point that they had to go to the hospital and get their stomachs pumped. They were eating, you know, 10,000 calories a day. Mm. So this, the, the refeeding is, is real. And what happened in all these individuals, again, sometimes it took as long as two years, sometimes it was less. Most of them regained a good amount of weight, but by the end, they had all gotten back to their, to their baseline weight that, when they had started. And so 
I think this is, if we can extrapolate this out and compare this to what so many people experience and have experienced for decades. And I was one of these people who experienced this for many years, severe under eating. And sometimes when you're in that situation, refeeding a little quicker is, is worth it considering what we've put ourselves through and the severe energy deficit we've put ourselves through. Uh, but again, there might be some waking in the meantime there. So everyone has to evaluate on the individual level, what makes the most sense for them. That's great. So that's interesting. Now it, for people to start on this, it seems from my perspective that the, the first step is to calculate how much protein you need, because you need a baseline protein and that pretty much is consistent for everyone. And I, I love your recommendation and Mike's of 0.6 to 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight. And I'm assuming that's lean body mass, right? Or do you, so, do you, do you just take the total body weight? In the studies looking at this, they were looking at total body weight, but I would, I would do this assuming you're at your goal body weight. Okay. You know, there's okay. still some fat mass there. We're not ignoring all the fat mass because that was what the studies were based on. But if someone's largely overweight, it will skew the value. So I would say ideal body weight, okay. 0.6 to 0.8 grams of ideal body okay, weight. Okay, good. So anyway, you make that calculation. And, it, and if you're going to eat the right amount of calories, it's probably about 15% of your total calories would be protein. And it's got to be the right protein. And we're not going to go into the details of that here, here or now. But if I, but you get that number down first and you prioritize it and you want typically 20 to minimum of 20 to 30 grams at a meal divided equally through a few hours apart just to make sure that you can get that stimulus to mTOR. But then how do you advise uh, distributing the calories between the, because there's only two other macronutrients left, fat and, and carbs. You know, especially if you're coming from a high carb, I mean, I mean, low carb, you're going to be like 5%, 10%, uh, you know, so typically you know, the low carb diet is like 70, 80% fat. And uh, so what, what do you, I mean, think, I think you're recommending 30 to 40% fat and the rest is carbs. So my current recommendation on the fat side would be the end point we would want is 20 to 40% fat. Okay. And I would lean toward that lower 20% if somebody's, uh, has less muscle mass is less active mm. or is, uh, more overweight and has more body fat. And the reason for that is a couple fold one, there's going to be less of a need for fat. So the idea with fat is we're trying to get as much as we need. We don't want to go too low because too low will cause issues with digestion and hormones. So we need, we have necessary amounts there. And the other is is going to be how much we're using for fuel. So if we're pretty active and we have a lot of muscle mass, those fat needs will be higher. So if we're on the low end there and we have more body fat, we'll already be releasing more body fat as well. So our fat intake needs aren't as high. And so that would be a case where lower on the spectrum of around 20% tends to be more helpful. It can be more helpful for insulin sensitivity when someone's struggling with that. So that's certainly another thing to manipulate. We mentioned the B vitamins before, but decreasing the fat can certainly help in that sort of instance to improve our insulin sensitivity. So that would be the low end there. And then on the high end, you know, 30 to 40% would be more for someone who's leaner, has more body mass, uh, body uh, muscle mass, excuse me, and who's more active. And so that, yeah, that, that would be the higher end of the range. And then we kind of flip that with carbs. So the carbs can really be, again, anywhere from 40 to 60%, you know, uh, if we're opposing that with the fat, and so I would be on the higher end of that carb range if your fat is lower and on the lower end of that carb range, if your fat is higher, just kind of adjusting it, as you said, protein first, and then looking at fat can be the next most helpful one. 
and then carbohydrates last will, I guess you could say fill in, fill but in. we really want to get the amount that we, the amount that we need. Right. So that, so that's, that's a helpful context there. But what I will say is if someone's coming from 80% fat, 20% protein, we don't, and, and they're struggling with insulin resistance and things, we don't want to jump to 20% fat, 60% carbs and 20% protein. Mm -hmm. That jump will not go too well. Mm -hmm. So the, so what we were talking about there is those of those macronutrient ranges is kind of the end point. But if someone's starting at super high fat, if they're at 20% protein, 80% fat, 0% carbs, the next step might be 10% carbs and 70% fat, and then 15% carbs or 20% carbs and 60% fat. How quickly we go through that as a, you know, as we said, is going to be individual. It'll depend on how someone's responding and how they feel. Some people they're going to jump, right? I jumped from keto, cyclical keto into higher carb. Like, again, jump was relative. It wasn't the next day. It was, you know, over weeks, but it, it depends on the, on the individual's circumstances, but we do want to transition to that. We don't want to go immediately there because all of the carbohydrate machinery, so to speak, the things that increase carbohydrate utilization is turned down when we're on a low carb diet. And that also includes thyroid. It also includes looking at levels of stress hormones and, and all of that. So. Well, good. Thank you for those parameters. So I wanted to share my personal experience and which completely validated this approach was biologically correct, at least for me, and it was certainly worth exploring and diving deeper into and sharing it with other people. So I was in pretty good shape and thought, at least I thought I was, and uh, I thought I had more muscle mass and I weighed about 190 and I had 15% body fat. This is by InBody, which is probably the best bioimpedance analysis out there and pretty comparable, if not almost identical to DEXA scan, which you don't want to do because it's ionizing radiation. But DEXA is pretty well documented to be fairly accurate. So anyway, the in-body was 15%. When I, when I adopted this, now I had 70% fat intake. But the, the interesting thing about my fat intake, it, it was probably less than 3% PUFA, less than 3%, which is, very, which is an anomaly. Very, very few people are doing that low. So it's mostly all saturated monos. So that's the problem with the high-fat diet is that it's – you're getting so much PUFA in the diet, which is really devastating long-term. But anyway, I, I, I made the transition, lots of watermelon in the morning and radically increased my carbs. I lost 10 pounds of weight, 10 pounds within a month or two. My fasting blood sugar went down by 10 points. <laughs> and what, oh, I had this per persistently high, not really high, anything under one for high sensitivity CRP, C-reactive protein which is considered one of the best barometers of inflammation is considered normal, but mine was 0 0.7, 0 0.8. I couldn't get it down to below 0 0.2, which is where I wanted it to be. It went down to 0 0.2 once I did that. And uh, there was another, I th oh, it was, this was really interesting. I had this anemia because I had so much fuel and it was using so much energy I've, I've, I've got a genetic anemia called thalassemia, <clears throat> which, which essentially gives me, it looks like iron deficiency anemia, but it's not. It's an inability to make one of the beta, the, the hemoglobin chain, so you get really tiny red blood cells and a lot of them. Well, as a result, I've always been anemic, you know, hemoglobin's typically below 12, but my hemoglobin shot to 14 and my iron level, the ferritin level, dropped dramatically because I was actually my body was able to make a lot more red blood cells. Now that, that kind of reverted back since then, but I thought it was just absolutely fascinating that that happened. It was just astonishing 
actually, that you could have that dramatic a change. Cause I had that my whole life and all of a sudden it changed. But, and what was the other thing? There was probably one or two other variables, but to me that just was just solid proof that this was the right way to go. And I'm just so happy. I, I learned about it and finally embraced the, what Pete was teaching and uh, adopted it because it was so valuable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I saw I saw very similar shifts. I never looked at things like CRP, but for one, uh, my LDL dropped a hundred points, or not oh. LDL. My total cholesterol dropped a hundred points, mostly from from LDL. Uh, saw big shifts in in TSH coming down, and you know improvements in thyroid. I unfortunately don't have as many before and after tests because this was quite a while back. And as you said, I was you know in college and. Uh, yeah. maybe 19 at the time. Yeah, so. you, you weren't, uh, weren't yeah. an avid biohacker at the time, but you're but you an early adopter for sure. So, you know, the, one of the things, you know, maybe we, there's so many places we can go, but, you know, I've been, I was, had over 40 years of long distance running and, and I'm glad I did that rather than starting with resistance training because I've learned recently that resist, if you do excess resistance training, it's really dangerous, really dangerous because you're just pushing way too hard and it's actually good. decreases your life expectancy. So where long-term, long-term endurance exercise doesn't do that. You still get some benefit. It's not as much. The best is just simple movement or walking. I mean, that is the ultimate that's, and you're, you're doing it, you embrace it, you get it. You understand that, you know, just the movement and you don't need a lot of resistance training, but for those that, that are doing it, one of the podcasts I was listening to where you discuss this, which is really fascinating observation is that once you get your cellular energy up and you, you dial these in, you can get the same benefit with a fraction of the exercise. And, you know, cause people are trying to gain muscle mass because it's important. You don't want to have sar- sarcopenia. You don't want to be frail when you're elderly. So you, you, you know, you, you go hit, go to the gym and hit the resistance training. But if you're not, able to have the cellular energy to convert that signal into muscle mass, it's all useless almost. It's a waste of time, effort, and energy, and maybe highly counterproductive. So maybe you can comment on that because it was it was really mind-blowing. It was so obvious when when you when you stated that, yeah, you have to have cellular energy, otherwise it doesn't work. You cannot create muscle. Yeah. And all the signals, you know, muscle is as important as it is. It's if we're trying to survive through a famine, it's not all that important. <laughs> Surviving is more important. And so we have to, and our brains are more important. You know, we, even though we'll turn down the function there, we don't want to be degrading in those more important organs. You know, we'll degrade our muscle first for sure. And we see that as well, you know, even some of these recent fasting studies where, you know, when they compare a, a fasting group, you know, an intermittent fasting group in humans versus a regular group, and they're both in a calorie deficit, the fasting group loses a lot more lean body mass, a lot more muscle mass because of the stress. And it's very similar to what happens when we're avoiding carbohydrates. And yeah, so I experienced that myself for sure. I was someone who had been working out for a long time at that point and with building muscle being really the main goal as well as building, building strength. And those things shot up with the same stimulus after bringing the carbs and calories up, which, you know, I think to somebody who is maybe a bodybuilder, they're like, yeah, of course, you're not gonna, you're not gonna gain <laughs> muscle when you're in a cut, so to speak. But so many of us in the, you know, when we were in the low carb space that we didn't put those things together. So all of the signals when we're in a a low or on a low carb diet, encourage us to be catabolizing our muscle, right? High levels of glucagon, adrenaline, and cortisol, low levels of T3, low levels of testosterone, which sometimes take longer to show up, but often do. Those things are not going to be conducive to building muscle. And then, as you mentioned, 
while we need protein as a building block, we need energy to build with the building blocks. And I think that's so often ignored, even some of the people currently who are recognizing that there's some cost to fasting for lean body mass, they're suggesting that it's just because of a lack of protein, but it's not. It's because of the lack of energy and the hormonal signals as a result of that, that are preventing us from using energy to actually build the muscle and build the strength. So that's absolutely key. And I think, as you were saying, our the amount of stimulus we need to build muscle goes down considerably when we have enough energy on board, when we're in a really well-fueled state, high nutrient state, and high, essentially, anabolic state. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you give us feedback with respect to the people you're seeing, the men specifically, that have been on low carb. What percentage do you find have low testosterone? And the answer to low testosterone is not, is not taking testosterone hormone replacement therapy at all in any way, shape or form. That is probably the last thing you want to do. Yeah, a good number. Of course, there is a little bit of a selection bias, of course, where the people who are coming to be are in, are looking for help. So they're more likely to, to see those things, but percentage wise, definitely a majority, definitely wow. over 50%. So it is the majority. And what level, what type yeah. of levels are you seeing? Talking sub 500, oh. sometimes lower, but talking sub 500 okay. there. Yeah. Yeah. It, and this is a natural product of a semi-starvation state or a starvation state of a low carb state that mimics starvation. Testosterone and reproduction are not, not only are they not important when we're starving, but they're intentionally down-regulated because that is energy that we can't expend in that scenario. And so, as you were saying, the solution there is not just to throw testosterone on top because, and, and this is, I think, another misconception there is that when we throw on hormones, when we, if we try to get off later, they'll be even lower. We're going to just downregulate all the processes. That will happen if you don't fix the underlying state and you just throw testosterone on top. What you're going to be doing essentially is what you're telling your body, you're giving it a signal that says, we actually still want to prioritize reproduction and muscle, even though we're in a low energy state. And that has to come from somewhere. So what that means is you're in inherently down-regulating or, or deprioritizing other tissues, liver, kidney, brain, digestion, and forcing the prioritization of reproduction and muscle mass. You don't want to do that in a low energy state. I mean, if, if your only goal is what you look like and aesthetics without any concern for health, then, then maybe, but I think that's <laughs> well, <I like> that. <laughs> right, right. But, but instead, what we want to do is look at what has led to the low testosterone in the first place and reverse that state, which essentially comes down to energy. And we see it even, you zoom, you zoom in in any area and you see this. So you zoom into the testicles, the cells that are the latex cells, you know, the production of testosterone. If there's not enough ATP there, they won't be producing testosterone. If there are issues with the electron transport chain, they won't be producing testosterone. If you don't have enough T3 there, you won't be producing testosterone because T3 moves the cholesterol into the place in the mitochondria to convert it to pregnenolone and the other steroids. So all of the big picture things that help that increase our metabolic rate will increase testosterone. And then on the flip side, if you have cortisol there, you're not going to be producing testosterone. It's a negative, uh, it has a, an inhibition there. So what we don't want to do is just zoom into the testicle only and say, well, how do we fix that? We want to look at the big picture and say, well, how do we get out of a constant stress state? And the biggest thing is producing energy. And how do we do that? It's getting enough carbohydrates and fats and protein, getting enough nutrients, looking at sufficiency there and optimal, what is optimal to have, and then make sure that we're converting it well, lowering endotoxin, 
making sure we're getting enough sunlight, making sure we're getting enough sleep, making sure we're getting nutrients, supporting our hormonal state. And in the process of doing that, I think it's okay to support a little further with some extra hormones. If someone's really low in thyroid and it's not getting, it's not improving after the, a, a good period of time of fixing the foundations, a little bit extra support there can help. And that can increase testosterone. And I'd rather look at thyroid before testosterone if we're going to supply some hormone. Uh, and I'm not saying even testosterone, I'm saying even pregnenolone and DHEA. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a place for those two. I might look at thyroid first, see where that's, how that's looking, and then maybe try pregnenolone and DHEA after. It kind of depends on the individual, but those are also helpful precursors to testosterone that can help provide some support in the meantime. And again, we don't have to be concerned that when we go off of those, our testosterone production is just going to go to the floor. And I've had people who I've worked with who have been on TRT and we were able to fix the foundations. Initially, they went off TRT and their testosterone, testosterone came down, but we were able to fix things up during that time where it came back up. I'm talking to nearly a thousand, you know, high above 800s, even though they were on TRT before. So again, that just points to the situation where if we fix the foundations and what was causing low testosterone in the first place, even if we're supporting, you know, with pregnenolone, DHA, thyroid, we can still restore that ability to produce testosterone. And the same thing applies to thyroid as well. If we're using a bit of T3 or a desiccated thyroid, whatever it is, we don't have to worry about the thyroid being deregulated or downregulated. It'll happen short term, but as long as the right signals are there and the wrong signals aren't, right? As long as glucagon, adrenaline, cortisol are kept low and energy is high, we're in a solid energetic state and our livers have glycogen and all of that, the thyroid hormone production will come back. Uh, it's just it's just a matter of supporting us to get there and using some support like the thyroid hormones, pregnenolone, DHEA, after the foundations are in place can help us get to that point. So uh, yeah, multifactorial approach, but totally doable and solvable. It seems so logical the way you explain it. It's so obvious. Yet there are people in a low carb space that I can think of, uh, and I'll name them, it's Dom D'Agostino, who's a really brilliant research scientist and you know, actually is based out of, of Florida, University of Florida and Tampa, and does great work. And he's a big promoter of low, low carb diet and not necessarily ketosis, although he recommends it therapeutically, but he's also a bodybuilder. And uh, he, I, I think he's deadlifted 700 pounds, 800 pounds. He's been bodybuilding most of his life. Yet his testosterone level, I heard him on a podcast recently. I was surprised it was like 300. And, and he was explaining <laughs> that he, be, he, he believed this is, that it's normal for your testosterone to decrease as you age. I said, dumb. Um, I'm tempted to, to communicate with him. And I think he'd be open to it because he's, he, he's not a dogmatic guy. He's pretty, he seems to be pretty open in general. I, I really like him as a person, but he doesn't understand this testosterone. Yeah. And there are a number of keto and car carnivore advocates that I've seen with, who have mentioned that they have low testosterone, but you know, they've got the muscle mass, so it's gotta be okay. But I, yeah, Dom, Dom is great. I had a kind of friendly debate with him. We did a, a two-part debate where we discussed. Well, I think some that's why I mentioned right? it. I was, it was, it was. A, that's why I saw it because you were, you had a discussion with them. That's where we mentioned that that this testosterone was three hundred. Yeah, yeah, and and of course we had some some disagreements. <laughs> it didn't really <laughs> come together on everything. Although I will, I do think it's important to mention, and I don't want to. I mean, watch the interview, so I'm not taking this all out of context, but. One of the first things he started with is that he does not suggest a ketogenic diet mm -hmm. as a health right, diet. Right. His only suggestion for it is in certain disease states like epilepsy, which even then I think 
what we're looking at there is a carb metabolism problem, high lactate, a number of other things that suggest that if we fixed carb metabolism, we might be able to resolve the issue without needing to go to a ketogenic diet, but that's a separate question. But in any case, yeah, that was one of the first things he said was that he's not suggesting this as, as a health diet. Yeah, that's a switch, and, him, but it was a really healthy move in the right direction. It shows his flexibility and openness. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So do you think that there's ever, I mean, clearly there's, you can't discount the fact that people have improved from doing keto. And you alluded earlier to some of the reasons why that is typically because of endotoxin and lowering the, the fuel to feed those bacteria and produce it. Uh, but do you ever think that, that, that there's an indication to start on that, to regain insulin sensitivity, or you just think that it's, it's just a totally wrong direction and it'd be far safer to go along the lines that we discussed earlier. So if we are choosing between continuing to do what the individual is doing or going to keto or carnivore, keto or carnivore are probably a better place to go. Right. And you had, you mentioned the endotoxin is one main reason. And we see this borne out in the research too. Another reason is poor glucose metabolism, insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. If someone's insulin resistant, they're not using the carbs coming in. And if they're not going to fix it, then sure, we might as well avoid them for that mm -hmm. period of time. But I would say the better route is to work on fixing it. And in the vast majority of cases, the people who are in that state are not coming from a fruit, like a whole food, fruit, root vegetables, good low PUFA protein sources, low PUFA fat sources type of diet and experiencing what they've experienced in the vast majority of cases. So my suggestion would be just go to that. We don't even have to overcomplicate it. Let's not avoid carbs. Let's not avoid all, you know, non-animal products. Uh, let's, let's include those things, but just shift toward whole food, low PUFA, easily digestible foods away from the grains for the vast majority of people that gets them to where they need to go without needing something as restrictive and inherently stressful as keto and carnivore. If, if that is the only way for someone to move forward, like if that, if it's that or sticking with what they're doing, then yeah, do it, do keto or carnivore. That's I, I there is an inherent long-term negative to it. There's inherent stress that comes with it. I never think it's the optimal route, so to speak, but if that is the route that someone needs to go to make a change, then I think it's fine to start there. I would just say, let's not stick with that long-term. I'd really prefer to shift, you know, to including quote, healthy carbohydrates as soon as possible. And that's because whether the stress is for three months or a year, it's always going to be a negative. And what happens is we have these major benefits from reducing the endotoxin and these major benefits from relief from throwing carbs into an insulin resistant state. But those benefits will like, once you've attained those benefits, the negatives will start to creep in as, as being overpowering at some point. And I'd rather get all of those benefits without the negatives. I'd rather lower endotoxin by taking out grains and any sorts of other, you know, raw vegetables, raw leafy greens, those kinds of things, lowering fiber if we need to but keeping carbohydrates so we can avoid the stress. I'd way rather get that benefit in that way as opposed to just taking out all carbohydrates. Excellent answer. <clears throat> so I want to go back to your biography a bit at this point because I neglected, because my intro was so long, I neglected to include some points that I wanted to mention. And one is that I, I'm careful when I recommend someone and I, I've watched maybe 70 hours of your podcast and what's really unusual is that you have no formal medical training. Yet I didn't, I have not heard one thing that I would disagree with what you said. You're really 
I don't know how you acquire your knowledge, but you're really sharp. And I, we had a discussion earlier before uh, about putting a, bringing you on the podcast, and we talked about, or you mentioned that uh, many of your friends had chosen to go to medical school and are now just finishing the, the residency because you're still young. You're under thirty, right? Yeah, you're yeah, twenty eight. So, um, that, which is about the age you would be finishing your medical training, depending on which specialty you took. And you you could have went to medical school, and you were tempted to, but you consciously chose not to. And I think that is probably the smartest decision someone with your skill set could possibly make, because. And I was, it got me to thinking because literally if you're smart and you're intelligent and you really understand health at its fundamental level, and you're not a servant for the, the drug industry there, you're just going to be frustrated beyond belief. And you're going to be an indentured servant to the system. You're going to come out with a half a million dollars in debt and you will, you'll be restricted. You, you're, you're, and we can see this in what happened with physicians who were understood COVID guys like, uh, uh, Pierre Corey and Peter McCullough, who are board certified in subspecialty, and, and their, their their board certifications are removed, which essentially makes it illegal for them to practice because they have no insurance coverage and they can't get on staff at any hospital. So essentially, you you are their servant and slave. And if if you don't follow the party line to the T, they'll cut your legs out from money. You won't be able to earn a living. You won't, you know you have this huge debt and you won't be able to pay it back. So. Congratulations on you for figuring that out in an early stage. You figured out long before COVID hit, but you, you saw the writing on the wall and you know that, that is important. But some people may be concerned that you don't have the formalized training. And I, I just don't think it's, it's an issue. The issue is what you know, what you understand. And, and is, anyone who's listened to this, this conversation we've had can understand you understand, you, you're, understanding of this is at a profoundly deep level. You know, the what I love about you is that you're, you explain it in details that are easy to understand. I mean, Georgie explains it differently. And, he, and I love, as I said earlier, I love his deep diving in molecular biology. It's not that you don't know the molecular biology as you evidenced by your sharing of the differences between fat and, and, and uh, sugar conversion in mitochondria but you choose to just simplify it so the average person can understand it. And more importantly, once they have that understanding, they can apply what they need to do to make the changes in their life. And I want to congratulate you on uh, doing that and really ser serving an important role. As I said, I'm, I'm so excited to, to have your, your resources. I don't have to make a hundred hours of video like you already did to share this from base one. Cause I don't have the time to do that. And I, I'm just beyond delighted that, that you exist and you've made the commitment and the dedication and you made a smart move. So I don't know if there was anything else I wanted to say. I just wanted to make sure I got that in there because I, I'm really impressed with you as an individual and a person and what you've been able to put together in a way. Because I don't know anyone else there that is, there probably are, and I, I just am unaware of it, but I don't know personally anyone that's doing what you're doing in the repeat space to educating the community at a, at a fundamental level that they need to, to understand it. So thank you. Well, thank you. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. And it's thanks to, to you and, and others like you that I was able to feel confident or at least confident enough in that decision not to go to medical, medical school and to, to realize the, how that would hold me back. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I did that. And I'm very thankful for that. And you, you mentioned, 
something that I think gets at a, a more important topic than anything we could talk about in terms of biochemistry or nutrition or anything else. And you were, you were bringing up, you know, concern, you know, what if somebody is concerned that I'm not an MD or about my lack of quote credentials by, you know, mainstream standards and is skeptical. And I would encourage that. I think one of the most important things that we can do as we've experienced in these last few years, as we've come to terms mm -hmm. with the lack of this is think critically and be skeptical and think for ourselves and learn to the extent that we can try to understand to the extent that we can and also value our own experience, right? Value what happens when we make some sort of change and try to integrate that in with our picture of what we understand of physiology. And that's going to be different for everybody. Everyone can only spend as much time researching and understanding as they, as they can. Uh, but I would really encourage that everybody does that. I would encourage you to be skeptical. Don't just take my word for it. If you're not, I mean, yeah, that's great. Don't do that. Look at the sites, you know, the sources that we cite, look at the physiology, challenge it, consider other possibilities. I mean, I think that is the best way that we learn. And that's how I've come to the conclusions that I've come to is by doing those things, challenging previous beliefs that I've held and trying to continue challenging my own beliefs. And so I'd encourage everyone to do that. And, and again, there's, we can all only do that to whatever extent that we mm -hmm. can, but so do it to the extent that you can, and then also value your own experience mm -hmm. and experimentation. And, uh, I think that's really the only way that we move forward in a larger sense. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, ultimately your body is the final arbiter of truth for you personally. So try it and see what happens. And if it, it's not, then it has to be modified because it's a love body approach. It's, it's individualized, it's customized. It's not some, and actually it's not just your approach. It's most people in the P community seem to have that approach. Danny Roddy is, and, and Georgie embrace it too. They, it's, it's, it's individualized and customized for the person. It's not, and, and Pete was never dogmatic either. He really wasn't. He didn't have, there is no such thing as a repeat diet. You know, it's, he would just provide the principles and the guidelines and you figure it out yourself, which is great. This is the way it should be. So you, your pockets are really good. There's the only thing that I want to warn people somewhat of if, if you're using, and, and I encourage you, and hopefully you're in the process of taking your content to different platforms that you can continue. It's currently on YouTube, but you've got to have an alternate platform because I think eventually they're going to take you out. There, there's no way this information is going to be allowed to exist because it competes too much with the traditional model, conventional model. They're going to, they're, you're going to be deplatformed. Not this year, probably, but down the road, it's just inevitable. I mean, that's, that's the way they're going. It's just more and more censorship. So, but, but in the, their current YouTube format, um, you, you cite many studies in most of your podcasts and you have a really good page on your site. That's not the YouTube page, but you have to really, it's not obvious where it is. You have to go into the more details on the YouTube description. And then there's a link at the very bottom, I believe, typically that goes to your website that has all the resources that you need. So, the, and th those resources are important, especially if you want to go do a deep dive on it and, you, and all the studies that you quoted there, and it's real easy to find you did it. You, it's laid out really beautifully, but just caution people that it's not the easiest thing to find, but it's there. Sure. Yeah. And, and if someone goes to my website, jfeldmanwellness.com slash podcast, it has a list of all the episodes and you can find the episode, click on it and it'll have the show notes and the okay. studies that we link to. So you, they can also find it from there. Or as you said, there's a link in the description yeah. on the YouTube or, or podcast. Yeah. Platform. Yeah, and that's an important, I just wanted to highlight this is a really important resource. If you're trying, if, especially if it's confusing to you initially, that to actually see the show, the show notes and the studies and look at them, it'll really help you quite a bit. So 
great resource. I, I just can't thank you enough. You've made my job in life so much easier. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it's so good. And it's, it's I guess, uh, it's just, I'm just so excited that you, you exist as a resource for people. So again, I think it would be, unless you're really ideally health, optimally healthy and, and it's, the odds are that it's pretty unlikely if you've been following me because I've been <laughs> teaching the low carb for so long that I probably confused most people and I apologize for that. I was doing the best I could, but you know, I'm more than compensated for it by finding a resource like Jay. And I, I would strongly encourage, like I said at the beginning of this, to go to podcast number one, where it goes through the basics. And uh, we gave you the, the, the sort of the 50,000 foot overview here, but he goes into a lot more details in those basics. And and once you start hearing it for the third, fourth, fifth, 10th times, then it'll kick in and it'll, and you'll know, you understand it and you'll be able to apply it and reap, most importantly, reap the benefits, radically reduce your risk for chronic degenerative disease and be healthy and happy. And, you know, not have to suffer needlessly because you, you, you weren't allowing your body to generate the optimal amount of energy that it can and has the ability to do. Because you can repair and reverse just about every illness if you get it soon enough. If you're, sometimes it's too late and if you're going to be dead of cancer in two or three weeks, it's unfortunate. And, you know, there is a point where, of no return, but for most people, they're very far from that point. And, and your body can repair almost anything, which is, to me, after studying medicine for so long and health, it's really quite extraordinary what you can, the body's capacity to turn things around. So. Anything else you'd like to add before we sign off? Yeah, yeah. So just to, just for anyone who's who's wanting to look at the podcast, it's called the Energy Balance Podcast. And we'll put a link. We'll put a one, link to it on site too. Okay, great. There was one thing you you mentioned that I I have to have to throw in because I totally missed it earlier. But we were talking about different diets for each individual and individual differences, and I didn't mention dairy as something that I think is a really important aspect of the diet for a lot of mm -hmm. people. But it is definitely one of these where it really depends mm -hmm. on your capacity to be able to digest it, to break down the lactose, whether you have reactivity to the to the proteins in there, specifically casein is a pretty common one. So that's a whole other rabbit hole that maybe we can discuss at, the, at some point. But again, the, it can look different. The implementation of the principles, which are the most important thing, the principles, the implementation can look different for different individuals. One person might have a highly dairy-based diet that's lots of milk as their protein source. For someone else, it might have no milk and it might be more meat-based for protein. For someone else, it could be 150 grams of carbs and someone else could be 450. So it totally depends on the individual there, but I, I had to mention that. <laughs> but thank you so much for having me. If somebody is looking for a great starting place for understanding these things beyond the podcast, I do have a, uh, a free mini course called the Energy Balance Mini Course. That is a seven-day mini course and walks through how we can adjust our diet and lifestyle to maximize our energy. And that can be found at jfeldmanwellness.com slash energy. And you'll hear, you'll hear an announcer of that on every podcast too. So you won't miss that <laughs> one, but we'll put a link to that too. But, but the most important thing is you can sign up for the mini cast, but I, I really want you to watch all these podcasts because it's, it's like, it's a free school. You know, there's the, the tuition is only your time. You have to pay a penny for it other than the bandwidth you're, no, you don't have to, you just, if you have internet, you know, you just, or your phone, you can just watch it. So I, I, it would be one of the best, best investments of your time that I, that I think you could do. And it's, as I said, it's going to be integral to the masterclass I'm creating because you, 
the Pete's work is essential for doing this. And it's, it's not an easy thing to teach and learn because it's so comprehensive and there's so many customizations that need to be done and so many principles that need to be understood to implement it properly. And Jade does a magnificent job of that. So I can't thank you enough for everything you've done and your commitment and your, your wise decision to not go to medical school. That was really spot on. And, and you're going to be rewarded big time for that because you're going to be able to help so many more people than you ever would have been possible had you gone to medical school and just now have been finishing your residency. So congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure, a real honor. So thank All you. All right. Keep up the great work.